So our message today is called A New Fascination with Life. And I think over the course of the last year and a half or so, over the course of just the way society is going, something has crept into our minds and our hearts that we never planned for. And that is death. Actually, it's a human problem. It's not recent. It's always been there. There's something about being humans, being sinful humans, humans in this world, where our minds just trend toward death. The negative. What do I mean by this? Um, We are fascinated with murder entertainment. I mean, murder mysteries have been around since forever, haven't they? Some of you are thinking, oh, those new shows. Well, Matlock did the same thing. Murder, she wrote, right? I mean, they've been around forever. Sherlock Holmes, all of these murder mysteries. It seems like there's always been a fascination with murder. Much of our culture is opposed to creation itself. I mean, if you think about it, human life, the way we live it and the way we just function on this planet, pollutes it. You ever notice that? It's just the way we live. We produce a lot of garbage. We produce a lot of I mean, even if you're not one of these people that's huge into the global warming thing, you think about all these cars and all these trucks putting off all this stuff into the atmosphere, it's bound to have an impact. Don't you agree? It's just our our very lives seem to be kind of contrary to life itself. Pollution, overuse, abusive resources. And, you know, we even take measures not to necessarily enjoy life, But quite often, we take measures to avoid death. We talk about longevity. Now, what is longevity another phrase for, another word for? Avoiding death. Isn't that right? We don't talk about living life to its fullest. We talk about longevity. And as Adventists, you hear about that a lot. You hear, oh, you know, the the Adventists live, and this is true, seven years longer than the average population. National Geographic famously published that study a while back. And, uh, you know, we talk about longevity, and they talked about different areas, these blue zones where people live longer. And really, it's about prolonging life. It's not about really living. So much of what we do is to avoid or put off the inevitable, to avoid death, to put off the effects of aging. We eat healthy to avoid death and put off the effects of aging. What about eating to enjoy life. Amen? Now, usually when we think about eating to enjoy life, we mean, you know, get out the gallon of ice cream. And I'm guilty of that myself. But the way we look at life is, if I'm going to enjoy life, that means indulging. And if I'm going to prolong death, that means being boring. You ever notice that? The, the boring diet is supposedly the healthier diet, and the, the more indulgent diet is the one where we really feel like we're living, and we live our lives that way. People treat their relationships that way. For some reason, we have gotten out of God's plan and thinking that, you know, the way to live almost is to point toward death, and then we think, well, I don't want to die, so I'll pro. It's all focused on the day we die. seems like the moment we're born. Not to mention there's a holiday coming up that really focuses on death. We, you know, we've, we've never been one to be opposed to holidays by any means. Um, you know, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, pagan gods never existed anyway. And the meat that was sacrificed to them that started off as pagan meat now changes its function for Christians because Christians don't believe in those gods. And so a lot of people can get off track thinking that because something started one way, that we have to be afraid of it later as Christians. But so we've never had a problem celebrating some of these holidays, maybe that aren't on the specific right date. But God, when they're changed for a different purpose, they no longer have their original purpose. And by the way, if we tried to avoid all things pagan, we wouldn't know how to function. Honestly, if you think about it, well, it originated here, so therefore we can't do it. We wouldn't even be able to live. But Halloween is one that I've never been able to rationalize in my head. Because it just, 
I mean, if, if, you, if you dress up like a monster, you dress up like, you know, you're bleeding or dying. I've never been able to figure that one out. So we've never celebrated that one. But it's a fascination with death and dying itself. It's not just that. Um, we, we, even in our minds and the way we think about people, well, people can't change. What is that really, in essence? What is that? It's kind of like a death sentence, isn't it? People don't change. We're quick to find faults. We're, quick, we're slow to see blessings. We're, we're so slow to acknowledge where God is giving life. Are you with me? And we're so quick to see the negative and the things that are decaying and dying and, and going badly. You know why we're on Mars? Do you know why the space is on Mars? Do you know why that is? Anybody know the real reason? Are you all awake? You know why we're actually on Mars? To find another place to live. This is, not, this is no secret. The, the next step is to actually put humans on Mars to see how well they can survive. Because scientists all throughout the world are thinking life on this planet is not going to be able to survive that much longer. So we need to find a new planet to screw up. That's honestly the reason why we're, of course, yeah, we want to study it, know more about our universe, sure. But ultimately, the Mars project is to decide if we can live there because we've messed up our planet so badly. That's common knowledge in the space program. Our political campaigns are based on faults of the other person rather than just simply, I believe in our country and this is what we can do. It's more, this is how bad that person is, therefore vote for me. Uh, forgiveness is a thing of a path of the past. Now we believe in cancel culture and destroying people's lives because of past mistakes. Not that we shouldn't suffer consequences for mistakes, don't get me wrong. We're fixed on death. We love to pronounce death on each other. It seems like we are transfixed as humans on death. Can't get it out of our heads. But I want to take us to a, a verse to show us how we need to change our minds and change our focus. This verse, uh, this passage includes one of the very shortest verses in the entire Bible. It's in John chapter 11. It's the story of Lazarus. We'll, we'll talk about it more if you're not familiar with it. But it's a two-word verse. Jesus wept. There's actually two different verses in the Bible that are two words long. This verse being one of them. Jesus wept. It's a, it's a very emotional chapter. It reveals the feelings of Jesus on a deep, deep level. And Jesus weeps. He's weeping. And the Bible scholars have all come up with all sorts of explanations of why this is. I think we're going to discuss why this is very clearly and show you exactly why Jesus is weeping in this chapter. But it's in John chapter 11. And we're going to begin... Oh, let's begin in verse, let's see, 1. John chapter 11, verse 1. Have you got it? Are you there? Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with, her oint with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Jesus was friends with Lazarus, so were the disciples. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill, but when Jesus heard it, he said, illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Lazarus loved Martha and her sister, and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, I'm not there 12 hours in a day. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Interesting. What, what, in what way were, what were the disciples focused on here? If you go there, you might die. Jesus says, wait a second. Not only is there negativity in this world, there is also positivity in this world. 
I am the light, walk in the light. Stop dwelling in the dark. The negative. The pessimistic side. Verse 11, after these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant rest in sleep. So in other words, when you're sick, what's the best thing you can do when you're sick? Take a nap. One of the best things you can do for yourself, take a nap when you're sick. So if he's sleeping, it's a good thing, right? Why are we going to go wake him up, the disciples say. Jesus, of course, was using a very common analogy to death, sleep. The reason that Jesus called sleep, and the Bible calls death sleep, is because the death we die in this world right now is temporary, amen? It's like falling asleep and then waking up a split second later when Jesus comes. You literally lose no time. It's really an incredible thought. You lose no time. Literally, you close your eyes and you open them back up, and there's Jesus. No time is lost between the moment you die and the moment you see Jesus. Isn't that incredible? The closest thing we have to that is sleep, really deep sleep. You hit the pillow, and the next thing you hear is your alarm clock, and you're going, already? Are you kidding me? He calls death sleep, and what a wonderful thought that is, because that, me, that tells me that I don't have to worry about loved ones being up in heaven watching me suffer down here. That wouldn't be heaven, that would be hell. That tells me that I don't have to worry about, about spirits and ghosts being dead loved ones trying to tell me something. That's dangerous too, and the Bible forbids it and warns us against it, because it's not really our dead loved ones, it's agents of Satan. But Lazarus is dead. He's going to go wake him up. By the way, when Jesus uses the word dead, dead, the Bible uses the word dead, dead, second death, that means you don't wake up from that one. That's why Jesus hesitates to use the word dead for Lazarus because according to Jesus, Lazarus isn't dead. He's only died the death that you wake up from. It's like sleep. It's the thing you wake up from. Amen? It's like he's closed his eyes and he's going to wake up from it in a split second. Verse 16, so Thomas called the twin and said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> Did you catch that? So the disciples say, oh, Jesus, are you sure you want to go back there? Because they were going to kill you. And Jesus says, hey, look, it's daytime. The sun is shining. I'm here. Let's be positive. Let's have a good attitude. Let's, let's recognize the wonderful things that God can do by leading us back to this place. And Thomas goes, well, I guess we'll go with him and we'll, we'll die with him. But aren't we just like that? It's always the negative. It's always the, the, the critical. It's always the, 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 the Eeyore. You know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Oh, I guess I'll have to go over there. That's how we are so many times. There's blessings right in front of us. They're walking with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of all things, the, the infinite, inimitable, immovable, glorious, all-powerful, all-righteous, all-holy God. Oh, okay, let's go over there and die with him because I'm sure we're going to be stoned. Jesus says, walk in the light. The light is here. Walk in the light. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus was already dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, let's, let's ask this question. Because first we look at this verse and we say, oh, what a profession of faith, right? What a wonderful profession of faith. If Jesus had been here, Lazarus would not have died. Now, if you're Jesus, what are you thinking? Well, I'm here now. I'm here now. 
What we're going to see in this story is Jesus' heart breaks not just because he sees the pain and suffering around him because Lazarus has died, but because he recognizes that he cannot make these people see that he himself is the resurrection and the life, that he himself is the King of kings and Lord of lords and the creator of all things. It breaks his heart that he can't break through with hope. And that's why he cries. We continue to see that Mary and Martha always come back to death. If you had been here, he would not have died. And Jesus is saying, well, I'm here now. If only you had been here, he would not have died. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Can you imagine those words? I can imagine Jesus just looking her straight in the eye. Seeing her pain, she probably has tears in her eyes. Face is gray and she looks just a mess. She's been mourning. And he kindly but seriously looks her in the eye and says, your brother will rise again. Now what intention does Jesus have in coming to this place right now? He already told us. He's going to wake Lazarus up. So when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, what is he saying to her? I am going to bring him back from the dead. What is her response? Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus had been with these people. He'd had meals with these people. He'd, he'd walked with the disciples. And here, when he tells he tells the disciples that he's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. All they can do is focus on the fact that they'll probably die by going back to Bethany. Jesus says, walk in the light. The light is here. Walk in the light. Walk in the life. Have abundant life and joy and passion and enjoy yourself and be a witness and, and live according to my will and you will have life abundantly. And they say, oh, we'll probably get stoned. And here, he says to Lazarus' sister, he says, Martha, your brother will rise again. And she says, yeah, I know. Someday when Jesus comes, when you return, when you come into your kingdom, he'll rise again. Can you imagine Jesus' heartbreaking? They just, they just don't see it. They just, they don't, I, I can't, whatever I do, what, I, I've brought other people back from the dead. And he has at this point. He's multiplied the loaves and fishes. He's performed one miracle right after another. He's taught them. He's, they've heard things from him that they have never heard before. They had every reason to believe that he could do this and he would do this. In those days, see, it was believed that if a person was dead after a certain time, that was it. It was part of the theology that was, that was going around. And there was different views about life after death and what happens when you die. And one of the theories was if a person was dead so long, that was it. That, that couldn't happen. Even resurrection or, uh, uh, you know, eternal life couldn't happen. There, strange beliefs were floating around at that time. Apparently Martha began to believe that or she didn't believe he could do it at all. And then verse 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You see, they believed that he hadn't quite arrived yet. They were expecting him to rise and be king of Israel and things would change. Here, she's saying, yes, Jesus, I know you're the promised one, but you haven't arrived yet. Jesus is saying, I'm right here. 
I'm right here. I am the resurrection of the life. I, me, standing in front of you, right here, right now, I'm telling you that your brother will rise again. And all she can think about is death. All the disciples could think about was death. Because that's the natural order of things. That's what happens. It's the world that we're living in, isn't it? You're born, you live your life, and then you die. We have to take life in order to eat and to function. The world that we live in functions on death. And then not to mention that, we sort of are fascinated with death ourselves. It's all death, death, death. And we pronounce death on one another through criticism and character bashing. We pronounce death on each other by canceling each other out and forgetting there's forgiveness. We pronounce death, death, death all the time, all around us. It's all we focus on. And Jesus is standing right there and he's looking at Martha and he's saying, Martha, your brother is going to rise again. And she, she can't see it. She, like so many of us, is saying something like, well, that's never happened before, so we can't do that here. That's not the way we've always done it. That's not what happens. By the way, if you want to pronounce death on an organization, do you know what the best phrase to do that with is? That's not how we've done it in the past. You know that, don't you? The best way to kill any organization is to say, that's not how we've done it in the past, and get stuck there. It's all death. We can't do that. It's never happened here. I don't see that. I can't, I can't focus on that. I, I, I've never, I don't have faith in that. And Jesus is saying, I'm right here. I'm the resurrection and the life. Me, standing in front of you right now. Verse 28, when she had said this, she wept and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. They still love him very much. It's just, friends, I want you to think about this. Do Mary and Martha love Jesus with all their heart, yes or no? But do they really know who he is? Isn't that heartbreaking? And isn't that a big warning for you and me? We can love Jesus with all of our hearts, but we can miss who he really is. We can love him. We can think he's a great guy. We can think that he, he's our wonderful savior. But we can miss out on the fact that he is the resurrection and the life. That's, that's when the Bible says that we have a form of godliness, but we miss out on the power of it. The life-changing, mind-changing, heart-changing, life-giving power that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We miss it. Because our heads are stuck in the critical and the negative and the death of this world. We don't tap into the power that's standing next to us and living within us. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Verse 30, now Jesus has not come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. Verse 31, now when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to weep at the tomb. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, I can imagine she's weeping. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. He loves both of these women. Mary was the one who probably bought the most expensive perfume and oil that you can possibly buy with a savings that she had saved up through a lifetime of prostitution. She cashed in all of her savings that she had made over a life of prostitution and she bought expensive perfume to anoint the feet of Jesus because it was going to be his time to go to the cross soon. And Jesus, I'm sure, loves her with all of his heart. She means something to him. And then she comes out to him and says, if you'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And he, his heart is breaking. 
Friends, we're doing the same thing to him. He's living with us and around us and he's blessed us and he's proven himself to us time and again and all we can think about is death. Prolonging the inevitable. Saying that can't be done. Saying that you know, life is going to catch up with us and, and thinking about death and killing others with our thoughts and our words. Killing, dying, death all around us. And, and we mean just as much to Jesus as Mary and Martha do. And we're breaking his heart. Because all we can think about and live out is death. The Lord says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Don't do that to yourself. And what do we do? We do that to ourselves. I can heal you. I can bring you out of that. I can help you rise up. And we say, that can't be done. I'm not good enough. That can't be done. I've failed before. That can't be done. That's not in me. I'm worthless. That can't be done. Those people will never get it. And that brings us to verse 35. After Mary comes and says, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And then in verse 35, we have that, one of the two shortest verses in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved them. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept, kept this man from dying? Nobody thinks that he can bring Lazarus back from the dead. Verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Now, I want you to think about the mindset that Jesus is in right now. His heart is absolutely broken. And his heart isn't broken necessarily. Yes, he sees the pain around him. He feels bad because Lazarus is dead, but he knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He's crying because he can't bring these people hope, these people that he loves and cares for. They don't understand that there is no reason to despair. They don't understand that there's no reason to be heartbroken. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the author of life. He's the creator. There's no reason to be heartbroken. And the fact that they don't recognize life when he's standing in front of them and he somehow can't make them see breaks his heart and he's moved in his deepest of emotions. His tears are streaming down his face and he says, take away the stone. Martha, Martha, the sister of the dead man, Martha, please pay attention. Please pay attention. He said to you, your brother is going to rise again. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And now he goes to the tomb and he says, roll the stone away. And she goes, Jesus, he probably stinks. Why are you moving the stone? My friends, how many times in your life has he wanted to bring you back from the dead and you say, no, I stink too much. No, don't un uncover my nasty stuff in my life. Don't uncover that. Let's leave that buried. And the Lord says, I'm trying to bring you back and give you new life. We say, no, don't roll away that stone. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the count of the people that are standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, I don't have to ask permission to bring him back from the dead. 
I don't need to ask for permission to do this. I'm doing this so that people see this relationship that you and I have. And they will know that you sent me. I'm not here of my own accord, that we're working together in this. Now I want you to read these words. Now when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. And I looked up that word cried. And it's the same word for mourning. It's not a shout. It's not authority like I've heard before. It's not that word. It's the word mourning. So he cried out in mourning, Lazarus! Come forth! His heart is broken, and he thinks the only way that he can make these people have any hope is to see a dead man come out of the tomb. Despite how he's looked into their eyes and tried to heal their emotions, despite how he's given them physical food and emotional healing, despite all of the things that he's said and done and lived out in front of them, he's crying, he's weeping, and he's saying, Lazarus! Come forth. And out comes Lazarus. And Jesus says, Unbind him and let him go. In other words, take off the grave clothes that are wrapped around him and let him go live. See, the author of life was there. The King of kings, Lord of lords, the creator of all things, the giver of life, the resurrection of life was there. And he rolled away the stone and he brought a dead man back to life. Friends, he's saying to you and me today, right now, come forth. Come out of that tomb. Come out of that grave. Be unbound and go live. But too often we say, no, that can't be done. That's never happened before. I stink too much. This world has done too much to me for me to emerge from this. I've suffered too much. I've been through too much. I've sinned too much. I stink. And the Lord says, don't you know that I'm the resurrection and the life? Maybe we're like Mary and Martha and we've been sucked into the negativity and the death that this world preaches to us every day and teaches us every day. You're born, you live, and then you die. And you better kill off anybody around you with your words and your actions and your emotions while you're waiting because it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And the Lord says it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. I'm the resurrection and the life. Live in the 12 hours where there's daylight. Just like he said to the disciples. Don't you know that it's not dark all the time? When this whole story started, that's what he was saying. There are 12, two sets of 12 hours. There's dark and there's light. Why don't you start living in the daytime for a change? Those were his words to the disciples. And that's our message today. Why don't we start living in the daytime? Because we need it. This world is shrouded in discouragement and death and, and sadness and separation and depression and sickness. And the Lord's saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm, I'm living among you. I'm living in your heart. Why don't you try living in the daytime? Why don't you try living where it's light? But we so often, like those disciples, go, all right, but I'll probably get stoned in the daytime. God brought life back to Lazarus, and he can do it for you and me. And humans are constantly trying to kill off what God has brought life. Have you noticed this? God created the world, and what did mankind do? We brought death. God gave Cain a brother, and what did Cain do? 
He killed his brother. We're constantly doing this. What happens in the story of Lazarus? It's just a, a little bit later in verse 9 of chapter 11 of, of, or chapter 12 of John. So Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. And verse 9 says, When the large crowd of Jews uh, learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. So word has gotten out that Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Can you imagine that? The reason, the final straw in the plan of the religious leaders to put Jesus' death was because he brought a man back to life from the dead. He'd been there for four days. Nobody else had ever done anything like that, especially in their day. And it's not that they rejoice and praise him. I can't believe this. He obviously is the Messiah. We need to listen to him. They say, no, he, we need to kill him now more than ever. And they also need to kill Lazarus because he's the proof that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, what, what I find, let's take a little caveat here for just a second. People that don't believe in Jesus don't recognize that Jesus' enemies, there's no period evidence at all that Jesus' enemies ever denied the resurrection of Lazarus. You catch the significance of that, don't you? Jesus really lived. There's plenty of evidence that the man Jesus really lived, Jesus of Nazareth. Some say more than William Shakespeare himself. There's more evidence that Jesus walked the face of the earth. There's lots of period evidence. They do discuss, even Josephus discusses the fact that Jesus may have raised Lazarus from the dead. Josephus, not a Christian. Now what we need to recognize is that the, the, his enemies are not saying that he didn't actually raise Lazarus from the dead. Now if you were an enemy, wouldn't, isn't that what you would say? That didn't really happen. What a bunch of nonsense. What are they saying? He did do it, therefore we better kill them both. I'm going to ask us all to be kind of mature Christians here for just a second. Have you ever had an experience where you thought someone was wrong and it turned out they were actually right? And then in those moments we have two options. Either we dig in and deny or we melt and accept. I'm not going to ask you specifics. We've all been there. Maybe we've melted and accepted sometimes and dug in and denied at other times. But the fact of the matter is that's what's called conviction. And the only way, and we see this in our world right now a lot, what conviction does to people is when the Holy Spirit really moves on your life, the only way to reject the movement of the Holy Spirit is to fight against it just as hard. That's why we're seeing more and more activism for sin. Because when the Holy Spirit moves on your life, the only way to push him out, it, it's, sort of like, it's sort of like when you're in, a, in an argument with your spouse and the Holy Spirit comes and says, you know, you need to just take the loss on this one and apologize. No, you're convicted that way, right? But then, but then sometimes what do we do? No, Lord, you don't know what they said. You don't know what she said to me. You don't know what she did to me. And we dig our heels in, right? And we're saying, I'm not moving. And the Lord's saying, you really need to take the loss on this one and just apologize. No, what do we do? The point is, how do we reject the conviction of the Holy Spirit? By fighting against it. You fight it. And that's the only way to get rid of it. And that's exactly what's happening here. They know that Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. They know he did. And they're not saying, no, that didn't really happen. That's all a big lie. They know he did, therefore they need to kill him. They're fighting against the very conviction 
that Jesus being the resurrection and the life brought. Can you imagine that? It would be hard to believe if we all couldn't identify with it. So Jesus pronounces life, resurrection, hope back from the dead. And what do humans do? Death, kill them off, squash the spirit. We never do that, right? It's in our human sinful nature. Humans are constantly trying to kill off what God has provided. But here's the good news. Life wins. God wins. Amen? And I want to take you to another cry. 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Very famous passage of Scripture. Many of you have probably heard it before. No worries if you haven't. But this is a powerful passage of Scripture. This is talking about when the Lord Jesus returns in all of His glory, and He's coming for those that want to live forever, that want to know Him and have loved Him. Verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. Now we see a different kind of cry. With a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of, a trumpet of, of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will what? Will rise first. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Now the difference between this cry, Jesus was crying at the grave side of Lazarus, and he didn't give that cry of command. It was a cry of weeping, of heartbreak. Lazarus, come forth. This is a cry of command, and I looked this up, and in the concordance, it's really interesting. It says it's a cry of incitement. Incitement. Now, what does it mean to incite something? Usually when you're inciting something, you're inciting something that's illegal. Incite a riot, right? You hear that often. And isn't that exactly what Jesus is doing here? Humanity has constantly trended toward death, toward the negative, toward the decay, toward the negativity, the criticism, the, the, the death that is all around us in this planet. And here comes Jesus as, as leader of an army, and he says, no more. Enough of this death. Enough of this decay. Enough of this criticism. Enough of this negativity. Enough of this failure. Enough. I'm inciting a riot. And it's a riot against death. It's a riot against negativity and criticism. And, and all of the bad that's in this world, it's a riot for life. He's inciting a riot. Because, you know, the rule of the land is death and decay. But you know something? We need to, recon we need to reconcile ourselves with something. Too often, we identify with the way this world works. Amen? Too often we're part of the death party. We write each other off. We criticize one another. We think about death. We think about dying. We think about decay. And we forget that the resurrection and the life is right beside us. And here's the thing. Yeah, he's coming to incite the final riot when he comes. But let me tell you something. He was trying to incite a riot at Lazarus' tomb. Because if they all would have been paying attention, they all would have said, He's here! Hallelujah! He is in control. It doesn't matter what happens to me because even if I die, He's going to bring me back to life. For Christians, there's a deeper hope that says no matter what happens to me in this life, it doesn't matter because the King of kings and Lord of lords can bring me back from the depths of the worst circumstances or even if I die, he's going to bring me back. That's the hope. That's the life of a Christian. But yet we're like to say, oh, yeah, Jesus, I'll, I'll follow you, but you know, I'll probably get stoned. says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Why don't we start living? So this speaks to me about the church. 
The church should be the most lively place on the face of the earth. It should be the most lively place because all of us who gather here, no matter what we're going through, we know that the resurrection and the life is living right beside us and he's living in our hearts. And no matter what this life might do to us, no matter what we might come through, he's going to say, roll away the stone and come on out. This place should be about life and resurrection and hope and abundant living and joy and warmth and togetherness. That's why Hebrews chapter 10 says, you know what? Don't forsake the gathering together of each other. Because look, if you don't come to church to be around people of joy and life, you will burn out. Because the, 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 the strangulation of death in this world is going to choke you out. So if you don't come here to be around life and really living and participate here, you will die off. And I'm going to be straight with our live stream audience. It's time to come back to life. You can't continue to live the Christian life at home in your pajamas. It's time to come back to life. Death is going to strangle you. And by the way, there are some people that can't get out to their homes, so we out of their homes, so we need to go into their homes to bring them life. But those of us that can, this world will choke you out unless you're here. The Bible also says that the reason we come together is to encourage each other to do good works. We need each other to poke each other, one for accountability. Hey, come on, buddy. Let's get going, serving the Lord. But also, we get new ideas. We get excited. We, 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 we encourage each other. Let's go do this. Let's accomplish this because the Lord's on our side. That's the church. We need it. And the last thing is, sometimes we get so caught up in the doom and gloom. Even sometimes our world leaders get caught up in the doom and gloom. All the threats around us. Last time I read my Bible, when the people of God are looking at Jesus, there is no such thing as a threat. Do you believe that? There is no such thing as a threat to the church when the people of God are looking to Jesus. Do you believe that? Matthew 16, 18 says that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. So you can spend your time looking at all the threats to the church and I'll spend my time in the presence of the resurrection and the life. Do we need to be mindful of things? Sure, but if we're focused on the death around us, that's what we become. The resurrection and the life is here and it's in our midst. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Ever. Jesus said it. And I believe it. This life is supposed to be abundant. Do you believe that? And we can expect eternal life. But no matter what happens to us, the Lord can say, roll away the stone and bring them out. And Jesus is returning to fix the earth, not destroy it. And you know that's true, right? Yeah, the earth will be destroyed by fire, but you know why he's destroying the earth by fire? To fix it. Put it back the way it's supposed to be. Put it back the way it was always supposed to be. Even that's life. You believe Jesus is here with us? Then why would we ever be fixated on death, criticism, negativity, what can't be done, or delaying the inevitable? The Lord says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Let's have abundant life right now. Let's incite a riot of life. 
victorious over sins, changed lives, transformed hearts. That's the church. We need to get back to being who we are in Christ. The way, the truth, and the life is among us. The church is to be the place that doesn't fear death and has a fascination with life. You have a fascination with life? And you know, we can look around us and see a lot of things to be, wow, the, the beautiful creation and our families and all the wonderful things around us. But there's an even greater existence to live. There's an even better experience to have as we live this life. And that's a life lived in Christ. Knowing that the resurrection of life is right with there, there with us. He is the truth, the way, the life. There's an even greater knowledge, a greater experience offered to us in Jesus. Amen? So, yes, the church is supposed to be peculiar. The church is supposed to stick out. The church is supposed to be obviously different than the world. But we've seen today the major way that that becomes reality. And what is it? by being fascinated with life and refusing death. The world is shrouded in death, but not us. Not us. The resurrection and the life is in our midst. Yeah, we're going to have some bad times. We're going to be confused and we're going to have heartbreak, but there is a deeper truth deeper than our heartbreak that we know is absolutely true. That the Lord for us, any moment of any day, and especially at the end, can roll back the stone and say, come on out and live. You want to live today? You want to live a counter-cultural life that is fascinated with life and refuses to be overcome with death? Is that the life you want to live today?